be seated. Good morning. I <clears throat> would love to draw your attention to Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. That will be our text this morning. It's the second week that we're in this new section of the book on the resurrection ethic that Paul is laying out before the church in Colossae. Remember the goal of this book is they would grow to maturity in Christ. And so he now begins to show them what that looks like. And next week in verses 12 through 17, we're going to focus in on the kinds of behaviors and practices that we're to take up as the people of God, to look more closely at those that uh, practices and behaviors that are to define us as a people. The week after that, we'll dig a little bit deeper into the specific application of this resurrection ethic in everyday practical realities like the family and those relationships. But today, because Paul begins this way, we're thinking primarily about what we're to take off, what we're to put to death, to not bring with us into this new life, what doesn't get included. So we're going to do this in three parts. First, we'll look at um, why we are to put some things to death or put them away. Second, we'll look at what those things actually are. And then third, and briefly, just a bit on how. How might we actually do this, put these things away or put them to death? So first, why? Why are we to put away certain behaviors and practices? And as we begin, I want to say it's really critical to say this, that anytime we come to the ethical teaching of the New Testament, um, to articulating the kinds of things that we don't do and do, we need to be reminded that the Christian life is not primarily just a list of do's and don'ts. That we're not falling into the trap of a kind of Christian moralistic teaching that somehow Christianity is all about how you behave. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times for our youth, for kids who grow up in the church and in Christian homes, they, they kind of get this impression, you know, well, it's all about what I can't do, uh, which I really want to do, but my parents tell me I can't do, or the church says I can't, whatever. And, and that's not, that is not, that is not the life of, of the follower of Jesus. And so especially if you're a teenager here, or you're a kid here, I want you to know that that's not what we are proclaiming week in and week out. And Paul seems to know this danger because as he's about to get into this ethical instruction and teaching, he's continually looping it back to the, the logic of the Christian life and to the heart of the Christian faith, which is the gospel, the good news of all that God has done. So why, why are we to put these things off? Let's see three little signposts here in our text as to Paul kind of looping back into these basic realities and, and make this point. The first is actually in verse five. He says, put to death. And then the next word is therefore. Of course, that's pointing us back to what he said in verses one through four. It's pointing us back to all that he's described about our union with Christ in chapter two. Last week, we said that the most important, the truest thing about you is that you're unioned with Christ. If in fact you are in Jesus, if you're a follower of him and you've given him your life by faith, the truest thing about you is that you're unioned with him and that what is true of him, he has died, you have died. He's been raised, you've been raised. And then if you move into verse, uh, to chapter three, where we were last week, think about these amazing truths that Paul picks up again. If then you have been raised with Christ, verse one, verse three, for Christ, who, uh, for, uh, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then verse four, for Christ, who is your life or our life? That's a massive statement about the most central thing about us in Jesus. So Paul's saying, therefore, in light of these things, these truths put to death. So it's, it's the fact that this transformation has taken place and that your identity is marked by the love of God for you in Christ that leads us. And two more ways that we see that in this text. One is in verses seven and eight. He says, in these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now, 
you must put them all away. That but now is a significant moment of this transition that your life was something, but in light of the grace of God in Christ, it is now something different. God has done something. He's given a gift to you in his son Jesus, and that's changed who you are. And it's in light of that gift and that transformation and change, that transition, as he says in chapter 1, you've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. You are to put all of these things away. Again, it's that fundamental logic of God has done something in you already. Now begin to live this way. And the last place we see it in our text is in verses 9 and 10 where he says, don't lie to one another. And then seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and you've put on the new, the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Prior to coming to Jesus by faith, we were part of the in Adam humanity. And actually the word here translated itself, and the ESV does at least put this in the footnote, is actually the Greek word for man. And I think that's theologically actually important in this text. Put off the old man. Well, who's the old man that we were in solidarity with? It, it's Adam. It's the in-Adam humanity that is under sin, under the rulers and authorities, the principalities and the powers, under the stoichia, the elemental principles or spirits that we've looked at in this series that Paul mentions in chapter 2. The in-Adam humanity that is under sin. You've put that off. And the metaphor he uses here is like changing clothes. Those words actually are uh, used for the changing of clothes. You've stripped off these clothes, the old man, and you've put on the new. Well, who is the new man? Paul calls him the second Adam for good reason. The new man is Christ himself. And you now live in the realm of this Jesus. You have put him on. And belong to him. And this new man is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You've come to a true knowledge of the living God and all that he's done in the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit. And you are, you are now being renewed into the image of your, its creator, of this new, new man. And that, that creator, as we know in Colossians 1, is, is Christ, in whom, through whom, and for whom all things have been made. You're being renewed. Who is the image of the invisible God? Well, Humanity was created in Genesis 1 in the image of God. Now Christ is the image of the invisible God and you have been brought into Christ and now you are being renewed into that same image. You're becoming like the truly human one, Jesus. And this has all happened in your life in a very real way. You're no longer in the in Adam humanity. You're in the in Christ humanity. So again, the logic, why do we put these things away? Well, it's because, the, it's because of the gospel. It's because of God's love for us in Christ and how that's transformed and changed us. And that's what grounds and drives and moves and motivates all of our efforts in the process of sanctification, of becoming more and more like Jesus. It's the reality of God and his work in Christ for us. So when we come to texts like this, not just today's, but the next several weeks, and we hear these exhortations, we never want to hear them as just a list of do's and don'ts, but rather as a list of, of the things that mark the life that you've been given in Jesus. And to walk in a different way, to keep up these old practices just doesn't fit this new existence anymore. It'd be like starting the Wimbledon final with the singing of the Star Spangled Banner. You know, it just isn't, doesn't fit in that context. It's out of place. All of these things that Paul's about to mention, they don't fit. 
in this new context with the things he says the literal translation in verse 5 is put to death the members that are on the earth and that 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 reckons back to verse 2 of don't set your mind on the things that are on the earth but these are things that are not under the authority of Christ they're they're under the authority the, the rulers and authorities of this world lesser authorities and they need to be put to death we are citizens of heaven so let's not bring into that place any of the practices that we're supposed to leave behind. There's a, a, a really funny episode of um, the podcast, well-known podcast, This American Life, called Kid Logic. Or no, it's called A Little Bit of Knowledge. That's the one. And uh, it's about these things that we believe in childhood that sometimes have a way of creeping into adulthood. Uh, and they tell the this, this story of a few people. Alex Blomberg was one who at the age of 11 or 12 first heard about the, the Nielsen ratings. And about Nielsen families. And, and he thought, well, they must have done some research on the name Nielsen and figured that it was a good cross-section of society. So they talked to families only having the name Nielsen to figure out what you know, people like and are listening to on TV and radio and so on. And, and then he's having a conversation with a colleague at age 34. And she says, well, what, you know, one of my friends was chosen to be a Nielsen family. And he's like, man, isn't that strange? They all have the name Nielsen. And there was this long pause. And suddenly he realized this thing that he had believed as a kid had made its way into adulthood. Remember when Paul said, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I spoke like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I put childish ways behind me. I think the, the funniest one was Christy Krueger, who uh, came to, uh, to learn about unicorns when she was a kid. And she's, you know, she, she just always thought they were real. Like, you know, it's just like a horse with a horn on it. It's not like a dinosaur, as she said, that, you know, something that doesn't exist today. And so she's at a party in her 20s, and she's there just hanging out, talking with her friends. And she goes, you know, do you guys think unicorns are, are they extinct or are they endangered? <laughs> and this, like, long and awkward pause again. And like, you really believe that? And she was sort of like, oh, oh. So these unexamined things. In a way, that's a decent way of thinking about these practices. They aren't to sneak, they don't belong in the realm of in Christ. They belong to the realm of in Adam. And you've been changed and transferred. That's why we put these things off. So secondly, let's think about what. What are we taking off? Um, and, and I do want to say that these are, these are very common things in our culture today. Um, and they are, they are things that are so easy to mark our lives. Paul gives two vice lists. That's a common way of ethical teaching and instruction in the Greco-Roman world in which he was living. Verse 5, he gives one in verse 8. And then there's another exhortation in verse 9. Um, before looking at the specifics, which I, we will do at, at least in three groupings, um, l- let me say that our vocation as the renewed people of God is to be salt and light in our world. We've been set apart Paul will later call us um, as saints or holy ones in verse 12. We've been set apart to bear witness to the character and glory of the God who has done these amazing things in our lives. That's our vocation. And so if, if we begin to take up or look like or continue the practice of the in Adam humanity things, then we are unable to carry forward our vocation. That is why you know, we're exhorted not to be conformed to the patterns of this world. But we're called to bear witness, to, to be a light. That's the calling on our lives. So three things here that we're to put to death or to put away. Put to death in verse 5, put away in verse 8 and going to 9. Uh, the, the first one, as you can see, if you're following along with me, is sexual immorality. The Greek word here is porneia, from which we get the word pornography. And I realize I'm bringing, I'm gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna bring this up 
I'm not going to be able to say as much about this as I would like to. This is worthy of much more discussion and engagement. But one of the joys of preaching expositionally through biblical texts is we come to these topics and we tackle them as they arise. And I trust say something meaningful about them. He mentions sexual immorality. And then the next word is impurity, which bears a moral sense of kind of um, in relation to sexual immorality, this kind of moral impurity. Then passion, which points to an unrestrained sexual appetite. And evil desire, a desire for something forbidden, including and most often in the ancient literature related to sexual desire. And then he mentions covetousness, which I'm going to treat as a second, second heading, but it could go with this one, and I'll explain that in a moment. The Colossians were in the Greco-Roman world, they were surrounded by all kinds of sexual behavior and activity. Relations with cult prostitutes were a common practice, no doubt even in their town, and probably for many of them were a regular practice in their own lives before their conversion to Christ and his lordship. The sexual ethic of the Greco-Roman world privileged those in power, authorizing them to take what they wanted and to prey upon the vulnerable. In Christ, however, sex was understood in line with God's creation as a gift to be enjoyed within the context of the lifelong covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. Outside of that, it was and still is forbidden. The Christian ethic rooted in scripture, as this became known in the first century and beyond, and the Christians became known for this radical sexual ethic, it was incredibly liberating, in particular for women who were exploited in that day. There's a contrast here between what's appropriate for the in-Adam humanity and what is called to be the practices of those who are in Christ. You don't need me to tell you that we live in a hyper-sexual age, a sex-saturated culture. Sex sells, we live in a consumeristic age, and so, so much of our culture is fueled by sex appeal, by appealing to these deep desires that we feel. Four of the top 20 websites visited each month on the internet are pornographic websites. The top one of those is visited more times per month than Amazon.com or Instagram. It is an epidemic that is often carried, um, carried on in the silence and quietness and anonymity of our own lives with our screens. We're told constantly in our culture that we need more and more sex to be fulfilled, that we need sex as we desire it. And this sexual ethic of our culture around us is essentially I can do what I want with my body. I own this body and can do with it what I would like. The biblical sexual ethic is rooted in the principle that my body is not my own. I am not my own, but it belongs to Christ. So Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 6, as he's dealing in another place with sexual immorality, glorify God, he says, with your body. Glorify God with your body. We can't think that we're not affected by the culture that we live in. We are, we are desensitized to sex on the screen, to sex in the magazine rack, to sex in the news. And the fascination with and overindulgence of this is shameless in our culture as well. 
So how are we called then to respond? I mean, Paul says to put to death the members that are on the earth. To put these things to death. To say, look, enough is enough. And the response of, in, in light of this, this world in which we live, of remaining faithfully committed to one person in the lifelong covenant of marriage to pursue a lifestyle or to pursue a lifestyle of celibacy outside of marriage. And these are the two options for followers of Jesus Christ. That response is deeply countercultural, isn't it? It's putting an end to the constant and incessant expression of this desire and, and saying, no, there will be contentment. But godliness with contentment is great gain. This biblical sexual ethic does mean that everything outside of the covenant of marriage in terms of sexual practice is off limits, and that includes premarital, extramarital, and same-sex sex. And those are hard words to say in this culture, aren't they? They're not words that we would like to stand up and shout. And yet, I'd like to say that as followers of Jesus, that, the, that God's design of sex within this covenant context of marriage is so beautiful and rich and good that it's not something about which we should be ashamed. It's something that we should, in fact, claim and celebrate. Within the context of this lifelong covenant of marriage, sex can become something that is an expression of self-giving, of service to another. Outside of that context where it is so commonly uh, peddled today, it, can, it is more often than not something that is about self-serving, about taking and getting. And instead of being enjoyed in the security and the secure context of and having the integrity of saying with my body that which I've said with my whole life in this covenant that I belong to you, it is often riddled and with and fundamentally insecure. It doesn't lead to the kind of fulfillment that the culture says that it will. And Paul calls this young church to a higher ground. You know, this is a way that you are to be distinct in this world is to put to death this kind of sexual immorality. And that call remains the same in our context today. Our, our calling as followers of Jesus who are in the in Christ humanity, who are living the resurrection ethic, is a calling to pursue the virtue of chastity. It is deeply countercultural, but it is liberating and life-giving and honoring to God. I said I wouldn't be able to say nearly as much as should be said about this. And I just, I just let, me, let me say one or two things additionally. I want to mention something about the grace and forgiveness of the God who is at work in Jesus. And recognize that um, for a lot of us around this topic, and all of us really are living in a very broken world, and we experience desires that are very broken within us. And it's so easy for us to be shackled with guilt and shame around this topic, isn't it? maybe because of what we've done to others, or perhaps sometimes it's because of what others have done to us. And it's so easy for us to start feeling suffocated and like we're drowning. And how important is, is it for the church to be a body in a place where that kind of wrestling and struggling can be met with the wonderful news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? That on the cross there, he suffered and died on our behalf, and he made a way for there to be the forgiveness of sins, including the deep, dark, and secret sexual sins of life that can bring us out into liberation and to newness of life. There is a way out. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're shackled 
in some kind of sexual sin because of the culture in which we live and just how easily accessible this is and how enslaving it can be, I want to implore you by the grace of God to speak with someone about it in this community, to come and talk to one of the pastors of this church about it, to recognize that if you do so, you won't be condemned, but you'll be invited, loved, counseled, prayed for, and urged in the grace of Jesus to come into the light more and more and to embrace this radical new ethic that is liberating and life-giving. We are to be that kind of community for one another. And we bear this in a context where, again, it is not something that the world wants us to talk about. And it's something, honestly, this is so deeply, I know, challenging because it infiltrates our families, our friendships, our neighbors. It affects people that we deeply love and like, as we should. But I want to say to you that this call that we see so clearly here in verse 5 of chapter 3, to put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, is a call that we need to hear again and again in the context of the church in this culture. It's a call that we need to to, to sound off in a loud and clearing way, as long as it's understood in the context of the love, grace, and mercy of God. I mean, think about verse seven. In these, you too once walked. Isn't that amazing? The liberating power of the gospel is that the people that Paul's writing to were people that were shackled in this kind of sexual sin. And he says, you know, you once walked, but now, like there's power to be transformed and to change. Church, we're called to look differently than the world around us. And the church is made up of sexual sinners whom God has redeemed and rescued and forgiven and called to live in a whole new way. May we walk that road together to the glory of God, the God of the gospel who loves and cares for us. All right, more to be said, but we can't say it now. The second behavior that he mentions is, is as I said, co covetousness or greed, which he then calls idolatry. And, and as I said, this could go with the, the, the sexual immorality. Covetousness mentioned in, in the, it's the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. And in Deuteronomy, the first thing you're not to covet is your neighbor's wife. It's the second thing in Exodus 20 version of the 10 commandments. So it may well be that it's, it's an ongoing way about this kind of insatiable desire for more and more in a sexual sense. But it, I think it's fair to say, and some commentators take it that way, I think it's fair also to see it as it can go beyond that to just this kind of greediness and insatiable desire for gain, often in the relationship of, to money and possessions. And Paul calls this kind of excessive acquisition, whether it's about sex or about money or possessions or anything else, he calls it idolatry. And what he's saying is, look, this kind of insatiable desire, this greedy, greed for gain, this ongoing kind of longing for other things, is, is, it's actually fundamentally a, a displacement of the creator who alone is worthy of worship with the creation, the created order in some way. This is Romans 1. You've exchanged the glory of, of, of God, the invisible God, for the things that you can see. You've substituted worship of the true God for worship of what he's made. So a life of covetousness, of constantly acquiring and longing for more, is, is, it's a life shackled in enslavement to a false god. And those false gods can't ever give us what they promise. In fact, they only give us ens further enslavement and distortion and diminishment. So we're to leave that kind of thing behind. 
this covetousness, which is idolatry. Remember where the, the story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, that poignant encounter with Jesus? He's like, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him some of the commandments. And he says, look, I've done all these. And Jesus says, there's one thing you lack, one thing. Just go and sell all your possessions, and give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And what is the young man's ruler's, rich, rich man's response to Jesus? Disheartened by the saying, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. You cannot serve both God and money, Jesus says. There can't be anything else that you desire an insatiable amount of except for God himself. Anything else that you start to desire in that covetous way, whatever it might be, whether it's sex or money or power or anything, it's just going to start to distort you. And it's going to be a rival to the true God in your life and it's going to diminish you. So Paul says to put these things to death. And then notice what he says. It's not like these are just small things. It's somehow, and I should say it's interesting um, for those of you who kind of know your Old Testament, you'll know that sexual immorality and idolatry are often the twin things that God is concerned about his covenant people not taking up. You see that in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20. It's these themes. And what do we read about them in, in verse 6? A sobering statement on account of these things the wrath of God is coming look this isn't just this isn't like some sort of like marginal thing but these things provoke and evoke the wrath of God which is coming that's God's settled judgment against the rebellious order of creation that has rejected his rule and that is demarring and diminishing the life that he loves and has made God's wrath is his settled disposition it's not capricious it's a settled disposition that is the flip side of his love against that which is destroying what he loves. And this practice of sexual immorality and, and covetousness, as commonplace as they are in the world around us, as much as we wrestle with them in our own lives, and I know that we do, these are the things for which the wrath of God is coming. Take them seriously, Paul is saying to the church in Colossae, this young church. Hear my warning, he's saying about this. You used to walk in them, but no more. Now you're living a different life. So then the third area of behavior, what I would call um, in verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. And in verse 9, do not lie. These are what I would call a discourse of violence that Paul is saying to let go of. The use of your tongue to, to destroy, to tear down, to rip apart. Lying is distorting the truth to protect ourselves in reality it is a destructive practice obviously and these types of speech they destroy the connection and compassion and community that we are called to have in the in the people of God and so Paul is saying I want you to put away all of these things this kind of discourse how are we how are we doing with anger and with guarding our tongues with not lying you know, we live in a world of obscene talk. I'm, I'm blown away at music streaming services at how many songs are marked with the letter E. Aren't you? I mean, I know they existed when I was a kid, so maybe I'm seeing the proverbial older guy now who's thinking everything's worse now, but it, it just does seem so prevalent. The other day, I was um, when I, I, in the news kind of following the, the Roe v. Wade decision and the anger around that, I saw a, a, a clip about 
the Glastonbury Music Festival over in the UK. There were over 200,000 people in attendance, and this young 19-year-old American singer brought up this 30-something-year-old British singer, and together they sang her hit song, which has an explicit word in the title, and throughout the chorus as a kind of um, action against the Supreme Court justices in the United States. And there were literally 200,000 people just shouting this word. I mean, we're, in terms of obscene speech, we are shameless as a culture. And again, this isn't just about washing our mouths out with soap. This isn't reducing Christianity to something about moral do's and don'ts. This is, Paul is saying, look, your tongue has been given to you as an instrument to bless. And what does Jesus say? Bless those who persecute and pray for those who persecute you. Paul takes that in Romans 12 and says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Who are you most likely to be angry with and to slander and have malice toward? It's toward those who hurt you. And what is Paul and Jesus, what do they say is the ethic of the people of God? It is to use our mouths to bless them to build them up and not to tear them down it's interesting all of these behaviors sexual immorality covetousness and the discourse of violence all tear people down they put ourselves at the center and they destroy others which is the exact opposite of the way of love to which we have been called that is at the center of the ethic of the christian life the resurrection ethic Sexual immorality uses the flesh of another human being for one's own gratification. Covetousness ignores or steals or takes from the other human being that which you would like yourself or just begins to acquire and acquire without regard for the other and their needs. And the discourse of violence tears down with our words those whom God has made in his image. They don't belong, Paul says, in this new realm in Christ. They were left with the in Adam realm. They're the childish things that, like belief in unicorns, that are to be left behind when you enter in to the in Christ realm. So these are the things that we're to put away. Thirdly and finally, how might we be able to do this, to put to death, to put away I just want to look at verse 11 as we come to a close. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. I knew a, a young man a few years ago who struggled so much with illicit sexual desire. It had destroyed his life and taken over. And, and then God met him. And through even a kind of recovery program, he found genuine healing in Jesus. And he was speaking to a group of men that I had pulled together because I knew his story and I, and I wanted him to share it with this group of young men. And he spoke so openly and vulnerably about his life and his struggles and about how God had begun to change him. And at the end, just as a kind of wrap-up question, I said, I said, well, just tell us one, one more time, like, why is it that you don't engage in this kind of behavior anymore? And I'll never forget his response. It was so simple and so powerful. He just said, because Christ is better. Christ is better. One thing about this new realm that Paul is 
writing about here in verse 11 is that Christ is all. He is the totality and he is in all. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is a realm that is saturated with Christ through and through and through. And the best defense against sin in our lives is to be enamored with Christ. It's to be consumed with a vision of the love of God in Jesus. It's to be wooed by his love and power and care and mercy and forgiveness. It's to keep our eyes fixed on him even more than we're looking at the bad habits and destructive things that we're trying to get rid of. The, the more that we see his glory and his beauty, Christ is all and in all in this new realm. There's a, there's a hint there. There's, a, there's a, a, a counsel there for us about how we begin to walk in this new way, how we put off these old things. Are you enamored with Christ who loves you who has transformed you. Wesley Hill, who uh, writes about these matters as a man who wrestles with same-sex desire but has chosen a path of celibacy, he's a New Testament scholar, says essentially that. He says, you know, we must believe that God is more precious to us than any other relationship. It's that same idea. Christ is better. Is he better in your life and understanding. And the second hint here as we close is this incredibly powerful statement, not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Because this is a Christ-saturated community, the old distinctions, ethnic, social class, are the two that he mentions here, which are often the fuel for prejudice, for arrogance, for violence. Those old distinctions are now irrelevant in relation to the love, honor, and respect that we are to owe and give to another image bearer of God. Another member of the in Christ family. And so what has happened is that through the gospel, God has created a community of people who who, yes, we, we are still, you know, Greek and Jew. The barbarians were people who were non-Greek speakers. They were looked down upon. The Scythians were basically savages. They lived on the Black Sea in northern Asia Minor. They were, it was a derogatory term in the Greco-Roman world. We still maintain our ethnic identity. To some degree, we'll still maintain certain social classes. But in Christ, those things merely add texture to the beauty of the unified family of love in Jesus rather than become the launch pad for division and violence and prejudice and arrogance. They're irrelevant because Christ is all and in all. And so you're invited into this community, whatever, wherever you would fit on that in category. Some, some scholars think that maybe a third of the residents of Colossae were, were slaves. This was a, slave and free was a big deal in the ancient world. But you're all now brought together in Christ and so not only is this being enamored with Christ one of the keys for how, but also the reality that we have been brought into a community of love that is unified because of Christ's love and grace for us. And we are now able to walk in this community. It's a communal exercise, this putting to death and putting away. It's a communal reality that we'll see more and more, in, especially in next week. Therefore, Paul says in, in verse 12, as God's chosen people, 
holy and beloved. You're a people. And so this whole walk of putting to death isn't something that you're required to do alone, but you've been given one another in Christ, unified together across all of your distinctives, made one in him, so that we can now walk this road more and more. That's the calling to put off. Next week, we'll talk about what we're going to put on. But this week, we had to dive through some of these things that we're to put off. May God give us grace and the empowerment of his Holy Spirit to live a countercultural life of the resurrection ethic of the people of God. Amen? God, we thank you for your word, even when it's challenging to us in this moment in our culture, especially on sexuality. We thank you for it, and we thank you for the clarity with which Paul writes about these matters. Lord, I, I do pray for anyone in this room for whom especially the teaching that your word gives us on sexuality is hard and difficult. Lord, that there would be places where those conversations can take place for all of us, where there can be freedom, where we can walk in the light together. And Lord, we pray, we pray that uh, we would hold to this ethic, not from a place of hubris or pride or judgmentalism or pharisaical thinking that we're better, but rather just as those who've been rescued and transferred, delivered and transferred. And what an incredible privilege, Lord, it is to be your children. Keep us, Lord, from hypocrisy. Please help each one of us to apply this message this week as we need to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.